Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Lisa, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to be with you today. Yeah. So, you know, interestingly enough, uh, as, as I was saying before we hit record here, uh, your book kept showing up in my list of recommendations on Amazon. And I'm like, okay, who is this woman? I need to go find out. Uh, so, you know, I finally went and looked and I was like, okay, we have to have you here as a guest. You're, you know, somebody I'm very intrigued by. So on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about your story, your journey, and, uh, you know, how that has brought you to doing the work that you do and uh, what you're up to in the world today? Okay. Well, I'll try to keep this somewhat brief. Um, when I was, well, I just turned 47 years old, so that will give you a little <laughs> framework for my, for my story. When I was 31, I was working in the nonprofit world. Um, I was a associate director at a nonprofit. I did a lot of project management and I worked in the world of education and education reform. And my brother was studying to be a landscape architect. He also lived in San Francisco and he was in a program and he had to take an elective and he called me up and he said, Lisa, I want to take this painting class, but it's at, you know, 8 PM on a Friday night or 6 PM on a Friday night. Um, will you do this with me? Because I don't want to go to a painting class on a Friday night when, you know, all my, (laughs) everyone else is out on the town. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. You know, and I had been a creative person most of my life, um, my mom is an artist and I had been surrounded by art, but I never considered myself an artist. And so I go off to this class with my brother that we take together for a semester. He, meanwhile, um, sort of, you know, sort of like gets through the class, but doesn't necessarily engage in it very much. And for me, it was life changing. Like I loved this painting class. And um, I loved the teacher. And so I started taking classes with him in his studio on the side. And then I started taking drawing classes. And again, this was all just a hobby. This was back in like around 2001 or 2002. So for several years, that's all it was. And then around 2004 or five, um, things like Flickr and blogging started to become more popular and more present on the internet. And so I started a blog. It's a different blog than I have now. And I joined Flickr. And I started sharing some of the things that I was making. I was also sewing and just, there's a lot of DIY kind of craft movement stuff happening back then. Mm -hmm. And I got really involved in it. And it was really a hobby for me. I was still working full time. I took my job really seriously. And, um, but something happened. And that is that I started showing my work and people were like, oh, I would buy that. Or will you, I'm hosting an art show at my gallery, would you like to be part of it? And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, all of a sudden people were taking an interest. And that was both really exhilarating and exciting, but also super intimidating because, 
you know, once you realize that people are paying attention to what you're showing, it sort of changes your perspective. You know, this, I was sharing very innocently like, Oh, Hey, look what I made today. And then more and more people started following my work. Um, and then by 2007, I left my full-time job to, um, to start making a living as an artist. And, um, and at first it was a struggle and, um, you know, I did all the things that most people have to do to launch their career. It did not happen overnight. But by about 2010 or 2011, I started making a really solid income um, as an artist, an illustrator. I, you know, was making income in a lot of different ways, which made my story sort of interesting. And we can talk about those if you'd like. And then, mm. you know, then the book came because uh, Chronicle Books approached me and they were like, you know, we've seen you um, build your career. Would you be interested in writing a book about what you did that got you to where you are? And sort of that felt important to me because, especially for people like me who are self-taught, mm-hmm. you know, people who didn't go to art school um, or didn't sort of grow up as artists in the world of art or illustration, it's all very mysterious. And I felt like I wanted, and it was very mysterious to me when I first started, and I wanted to demystify it for people so that it felt more doable to people. Hmm. So, you know, I, I want to go back to the beginning of this, which yeah. uh, I, I always do. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that, that really interests me, actually, is the earlier part of your career before you became an artist, uh, working in nonprofit, especially because you brought up education reform. And, uh, you know, education in particular is one of my personal hot buttons, especially considering that, you know, I've heard parents who, who listen to this show tell me they use some of our content to homeschool their kids oh, uh, and all the things that are going on in education. Uh, you know, I guess the, the question for me is how has that background, uh, you know, from nonprofit and education reform influenced and shaped the way you do your work as an artist? Well, I think there's two different ways in particular, probably even more ways than what I'm about to articulate, but two ways that feel very tangible to me are one, um, that I have this skill set <laughs> just from being in the, in the sort of traditional working world that have really helped me become a better business person. And I worked for a nonprofit, not for a for-profit business for many years. And I was a teacher but all of the project management skills, um, my ability to relate to people and clients, you know, my sort of maturity that I had around um, thinking th- things through, being strategic about my business, I think all came from this work experience that I had in a, non-pro- in a nonprofit in general. N- not necessarily that it was an education nonprofit, but that I had all this really amazing work experience, mm-hmm. organizing my time talking to people, planning, executing assignments, meeting deadlines, and things like that. So that's one way. And I also think that there is a spirit of generosity in the world of education that I feel I want in some ways to replicate in the world of art. Like I was talking about earlier, I feel like the art world feels very closed off and mysterious to a lot of people. I think it's becoming less and less so because of the internet, because now there are all these ways for people to make a living as an artist or share their work. Um, when in the old days you had to have someone representing you or you had to be, um, have a gallery or somebody who was sort of your, you know, the person who did your bidding for you. Mm -hmm. And that's all changing. And 
along with that, more and more artists are sharing their processes and teaching classes. And, and I do feel like that spirit of generosity that exists in the world of education, um, like we're all doing this because we all want, you know, kids to, you know, to reach their highest potential. So we're all going to share ideas and we're going to try to make education the best thing it can possibly be. Um, I think to some, to some extent there, there are some of us out there who are trying to do the same thing in the world of art, you know, helping other people to learn and grow mm-hmm. and not, you know, and sort of like breaking down this, um, this construct we have around the art world that it's very, um, you know, it's only for a chosen few. Mm. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense, actually. Uh, you know, I want to do a deeper dive into uh, your thoughts on you know education as it exists today, uh, especially as somebody who's come from a world of education reform, because this is you know one of my personal hot buttons. I always say I'm a, a you know a failed byproduct of the education system, <laughs> uh, and I'm really interested to hear uh, kind of you know what your thoughts are on where we're headed. Uh, you know, we had Seth Godin here recently. He said one of the big questions we have to ask is what is school for. And given your background, I'd be really interested in hearing uh, your thoughts around all of that. Well, you know, I have been out of the uh, world of education reform since 2007. So while I still do some reading and, you know, listen to podcasts on the subject, I am sort of removed from it in many ways, although I have many, you know, friends and former colleagues who are, you know, movers and shakers and superintendents and working for school districts. I worked, um, I worked in K-12 education um, personally, I worked as an elementary school teacher. And, um, you know, what's always interesting to me in the world of education is the sort of roller coaster ride we go on in terms of the focus of whatever the reform is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, you know, for a while um, it was all whole language and um, really open literacy programs to try to help kids who didn't have basic literacy skills to learn. And then, you know, then we move to like very strict phonics programs um, and let's teach, you know, let's drill kids. Um, and then, you know, No Child Left Behind um, with all of its good intentions also, you know, created a, a system in schools where teachers feel a, a tremendous pressure to teach to tests. Mm-hmm. And I think the byproduct of a lot of that in a lot of, for a lot of my friends who are teachers um, and for, you know, what I understand a lot of teachers are experiencing in public schools in the United States is that they are held to, you know, really high standards for, you know, getting kids to a certain level. And what happens as a result of that, because most of the things that the tests teach are basic skills, a lot of other things like art and music and, you know, creative endeavors, which really are the things that inspire kids Mm -hmm. and make them want to go to school end up being the last thing that kids get access to. And that to me feels, you know, both as an artist and as a former educator feels so disheartening. You know, here, here's an interesting, a question that came to me as I'm sitting here thinking. You mentioned elementary school, and you know that for so many of us, that's such a far, far uh, cry from where we're at today. Uh, you know, it's given how old some of us are. Yeah, I'm interested in what kids have taught you. Uh, and how they have influenced what you do today and, and, you know, the way you make art. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I, even before I identified as an artist, um, I was an artist and I realize that now that I came at teaching from a very, 
um, from a perspective that kids need to explore. And um, interesting story, one of my first teaching jobs was in the early 90s. And the kids in that class, it was a fourth grade class, um, they found, a few of them found me on Facebook about, I don't know, six years ago. Mm-hmm. They're all now in their 30s, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I taught them, they were 11, 10 and 11. And so I've watched, I've gotten at least over the last six years to watch some of them, you know, get married and have their own kids and start their own careers. They were in their, I think, late 20s when I, um, or mid to late 20s when I, when I got back in touch with a few of them. We had a little reunion. It was great. But one of the things that, um, that we were talking about when we reunited was how um, I inspired many of them with the, artic- or the art projects that I had them do. And I would teach them about, um, and again, this was before the standards-based curriculum. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of freedom to teach whatever I wanted. And I was, I actually taught this fourth grade gifted, quote, gifted class. And I remember teaching them about Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. And um, we learned about, you know, using non-traditional colors and drawings. And, you know, I brought in all of this stuff that really got them super excited. And they remembered it completely. And one kid in my class... Um, who I'm still friends with to this day, um, he, you know, he became, and he was just like one of those kids who, he was like a sponge for everything creative that I brought into the classroom and he just excelled at all of it. And he, you know, is, and I had always wondered over the years, what happened to Brian Perez? Like where, where did he end up? And as it turns out, he ended up as an artist and he works, um, in, uh, like video game, game animation. He's like a Photoshop artist now. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, after we got reunited, he came back and, um, and taught me some Photoshop skills that I really needed. Um, so I have him to credit. It was like this full circle thing where one of my former fourth grade students was now, you know, sitting down with me and giving me tutorials on Photoshop. That was about five years ago, but, um, I don't know. So, you know, I think my memories of teaching made me realize that I really had this in me long before. I knew it was in me Mm -hmm. um, and that art and, um, you know, the creative pursuit have always been really important to me and, um, and that they made that those things that I did with those kids really made a difference to them um, and really shaped their lives and their memories of school Mm. in a way that I never could have imagined. So, so in one way or another, you've brought up something twice, uh, maybe even three times that I think really is going to be the core of our conversation and part that intrigues me the most. You have mentioned that you didn't think of yourself as an artist. And I can't help but think that there are a lot of people who are feeling the exact same way. What I'm really interested in is, is you know, how as adults we make that kind of a shift uh, I, I can say when I started thinking of myself much more of an, as an artist and much less as a marketer, the work that I created started to change very drastically. Uh, in fact, I never realized how out of alignment I was with what I was doing until that shift was made. And I guess, you know, I'm really interested in, in how you find that uh, as an adult and how you make that shift. And I, I'd love to talk about through the lens of your own story uh, and kind of the process of uncovering, uh, you know, I guess for, for lack of something less cheesy, your inner artist. Yeah. Well, the first book, their first, I should say the first chapter of Art Inc. Um, is called I Am an Artist. And, and, and the reason that we decided to, to, to name it that and really focus on that is um, 
that for so many people, even people who go to, you know, spend four years studying art and, you know, at least in theory, plan to spend their lives making art, proclaiming I am an artist is, um, is like one of the most difficult things to do. Um, we, you know, art is subjective, right? And so there, there, there's all of these like loaded ideas around whether I am worth, like whether my work is worth anything, whether what I make, will anybody like it? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's sort of different, I think, than being a lawyer or a doctor or a scientist where everything, you know, like art is, is the worth of art in our society um, is based on whether it's a commodity other people want to own or pay you to make. Right. Mm -hmm. So there it's, it's a pretty loaded thing. So there's that. We also have this like, you know, idea, at least in the United States, I don't think this exists everywhere of the starving artist, right. That in order to, you know, um, to be a great artist, you must, you know, starve for your passions and not sell out. And there are all these sort of negative associations with being an artist. So there are lots of ways in which people, I think, fight proclaiming that they're an artist, especially um, if they if they don't want to starve, and especially if they actually want to make money at it. It, it can feel very confusing mm-hmm. to to sort of say I am an artist, but then at the same time say I want to be a successful entrepreneur. Like I think. You know, in the last few years, we're really starting to embrace that as a culture. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a very muddy area. Um, so personally, when I, uh, you know, I was telling my story earlier, I started to make art, I started to draw, I started to paint, I started to share it. And I never would have identified as an artist. I would have said, I like to make things. You know, it was not something, you know. But then once I started selling it, I remember the first time I was ever asked to, to be in an art show by this woman who lives in um, and owns a, a shop and gallery in Seattle. And I just remember thinking like, oh, I can call myself an artist now. But even then it felt super scary. And then, you know, you can imagine that a lot of people, again, especially people like me who are self-taught and even people who aren't, you know, you feel a bit like an imposter. Like I always used to think, you know, it's like I, you know, I'm showing up at this party that, that I never got invited to. And I'm at any moment, someone's going to find out I'm a fraud and, kick mm-hmm. me out, you know, um, and it really took me many years of, and like, even after my work was in demand to, to really solidly identify as an artist and be able to say that with pride. And I see that, you know, I do book signings and I do a lot of public speaking and I talk to people and that is the thing that resonates most for people is that they're afraid to sort of claim that as their identity um, for whatever reason. And, um, you know, either that they'll be seen as too pretentious or that, you know, they'll actually fail at it. So they might, they might not say it until they might not want to say it until they've made it, you Mm -hmm. know, um, or that they'll, that other people will think that they're trying to be something they're not. Um, and all these things are scary for people. So, and they were scary for me, but I eventually sort of broke through all of that and was like, this is BS. (laughs) I am an artist. I can own this. And now, one of my lots in life is like, or one of my goals in life is to help other people feel that way too. Hmm. So, you know, one of the things, the other things that's really interested me about what you said is, is, you know, you go to this painting class with your brother on a Friday night and he's not particularly engaged in it, but for you, something really, uh, you know, struck a chord, like it, it lit up something inside. And I guess I've asked this question in various ways to different people. Uh, 
how do you recognize those kinds of moments in your life? You know, it's interesting. I think when I was younger, like in my 20s or even my early 30s, I, I didn't necessarily know how to recognize something as sort of special or important or transformative. Mm-hmm. Um, and the older I get, the more those moments I know what they are and I know what they mean. And I'm willing to trust my inner voice about what this, you know, or trust my gut, like that, I, that if I really love something or if I really feel that something speaks to me, um, or a way of doing something speaks to me that that is in fact really, really, really important information and I need to use it, right, to bring more joy into my life, um, bring more meaning into my life. When I was younger, I think those things used to happen, but I didn't, you know, I was more interested in doing what I thought I was supposed to do rather than what actually made me happy or made me feel good every day or made me want to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say my career in education was, you know, didn't have any passion or commitment attached to it. It sure did, but like nothing like what I do now. And, um, and I, I think it's, it's one of, it's like that trying to know when those moments are important and, um, and to sort of use them to figure out what you're supposed to do with your life mm-hmm. is something that kind of comes a little bit with age. I mean, I, I think there are probably some pretty wise younger people out there who have already figured that out, but it took me a while. Yeah. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What do you think it is that keeps people from trusting that inner voice? Um, oh gosh, you know, who knows, but like voices of our parents, uh-huh. um, teachers, anybody who, you know, mentored or guided us as we were younger, like we, we, we don't even realize it, but we hear messages over and over and over and over and over when we were kids about what we're good at and what we're not. And in my case, I didn't mention this earlier, but like I wasn't the artistic one in the family, right? So I think I said my mom is a, is an artist or my dad's a scientist, mm-hmm. um, my sister was always the artist. Now she also happens to also be an artist now. And she, <laughs> so, so we both ended up in that, but I was the athlete, right? I was the, like, I was the, you know, I had a different identity and, um, and that got formed really, this idea of who I was got formed really early on, which led me to not take art classes in high school or college. And who knows if I had been encouraged to do that, what I might have, um, pursued. And so I think these inner voices about what we're good at and what we're not um, are still so strong when we're in our teens and 20s and even 30s because um, we haven't had a whole lot of other experiences to tell us anything different. Hmm. Um, And when I started sort of branching out and realizing that I actually had passion and skill for this thing that I never imagined I would, um, it really you know, I listened to it finally and was like, oh, I'm going to do something with, you know, with this. Um, so, and it's funny too, even my sister, I remember my sister's two years younger than I am and she's a photographer and a maker and a, and a writer. And she, um, I was over at her house and this was pretty early on in my art career. I want to say around 2007 or so, um, right after, maybe right after I had left my job and I was sitting in her house drawing and my niece and nephew who are now teenagers, um, you know, we're little kids then. And they were watching me like with rapt attention. I was drawing something. And my sister commented later, like, it's, it is so wonderful and fascinating to just watch you get out a pencil and draw because I never drew when I was a kid. I never took art classes. And she just had no, it was like, she was still wrapping her head around the fact that I had this like latent skill or, you know, of course I was taking classes and working at it too. <laughs> There's a lot of hard work involved, but that I had this, this talent, you know, that my parents sort of assumed only my sister had. Mm. So they really, they really encouraged it in her, you know? And I think they were just trying to encourage me in something that they thought I would be more interested in. And I am also super athletic and 
I've been an athlete my whole life and that's also important to me, but it's also possible to be good at both things, you know? So it's interesting how all of those ideas about who you are get formed really early on. Oh yeah, I, I can totally relate. I mean, if, if you compared the things that I would draw and the kinds of things that my sister would draw, it was very clear that she was the creative person and she went to med school. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, you know, I, I think there's something else really interesting that you brought up there, which is this idea of a latent skill. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, is there a process of self-discovery uh, that we can kind of embark on uh, and self-inquiry that might uncover what that latent skill is? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because adult learners, you know, adult explorers are usually the most sort of, um, how do I say, like, you know, blocked mm-hmm. or shut down because of all those voices or ideas about ourselves that we've developed over years and years and years. You know, when I teach art classes to kids, it's they're just so free. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, on both ends, right? There are exceptionally free and open adults and there are exceptionally shut down kids. But for the most part, kids don't have, haven't developed all those ideas about themselves yet and all those fears. And so they're really, I mean, younger kids, especially, they'll just create the most amazing things. And when I teach adults, there's so much fear, fear of failing, fear of not being good enough, fear of doing it wrong. Right. And so the process of self-discovery can be really difficult for adults. Mm. Um, because we're dealing with all of these ideas of self-doubt. Um, and I still deal with them every day. It's not like they ever really go away no. completely. But, um, you know, what I did was I, I had this mantra. It's sort of like, you know, I'm going to build and um, drive my own boat. You know, like I, one of the things that I try to do is not look too much at what other people are doing or try to compare myself to other people, that it's my own journey and my own creative process and my own work that's what matters. Um, and telling myself that over and over and reminding my, it's almost like I have to put blinders on, right? Um, you know, to embark on that. And that has helped my own process of self-discovery. And then also just this idea of like remembering is, this is hard in this day and age where we're expected to like publish everything we make, right? Like if, <laughs> yeah. if, if it, if it doesn't get posted on Instagram, it never happened. Right. right. You know, and that your creative process is your creative process and you can keep that as private as possible. No one ever has to see what you make. And, um, and remembering that until you feel comfortable to share something, that keeping it private is completely fine. Um, and, you know, and all and sort of owning your own journey um, and then really digging in and practicing and trying new things and experimenting. I really forced myself over the years to just try things that made me uncomfortable every single day. Mm-hmm. And some of them were disastrous and I never <laughs> tried them again. And some of them I realized I had some promise at. And if I just worked hard enough, I would get good at it. Um, um, and because ultimately, like, like, let's face it, we want to make work that's a, that we love and that mm-hmm. other people are going to love. And, you know, as part of being an, an artist is sharing your, you know, passions and talents with the world. So you can't, you know, it's important to eventually get to the place where you can, can share your, your creativity with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting you say that, you know, I mean, I think that we all have sort of this fear of, of, you know, what if people hate it? You know, what if I'm judged? And I've always found that, you know, when you're willing to forget that there's an audience there, uh, which is really, really hard to do, which is, is what I want to talk about next. Uh, some of the best work starts to emerge when you're not thinking about an audience and you're not thinking about a particular outcome and you just kind of let yourself, you know, be free. 
Uh, and it's funny because I can't tell you the number of ways in which you know, these different expressions have showed up. I mean, you know, in terms of events, in terms of the show, in terms of writing, things that I never thought in a million years would be, you know, what I, I, you know, in an essay I wrote on Medium called The Expression of Your Soul's Calling. And they keep evolving, too. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I, you know, I'm in the sort of, when I was first starting out, and I alluded to this earlier, um, I started sharing my work online and it was like, and I think I mentioned, you know, the minute I knew people were paying attention, this yep. innocent sharing, it stopped. And I became really self-conscious. I started comparing myself to other people. I became more discerning about what I would share and not share. It wasn't just about my own creative journey. It was about what other people thought about it. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, <laughs> or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, part of being a working artist, which is what I am now, and which is a, what a lot of people would like to be, part of it is getting comfortable with, you know, sharing it with other people and also figuring out how to like navigate that world where ultimately not everybody's going to like what you do. It will be criticized, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I, I, I have this, um, you know, it's interesting. I like, uh, most of what I do as a professional artist is for an audience. It's either for a client or for a show or wait. Like it's very rare that I sort of make work for myself. Like I say I have personal work and I, you know, my gallery in New York doesn't tell me what work to make. They say, you make what inspires you and we'll, we'll try to sell it for you. Mm-hmm. So to a certain extent, that is as personal work as I get. You know, I keep, I'm an avid sketchbook keeper, so you know, but I still end up, you know, photographing a lot of my sketchbook spreads and sharing them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really struggle sometimes with like, what is this private creative journey? And what is a public creative journey? And how is one different from the other? And um, because I think you're right, like, ultimately, when we aren't worried about what other people think, or whether or not it's going to be shared, or anyone will ever see it is when we really start to like, blossom mm-hmm. creatively or when new ideas come to us but figuring out how to make that happen and make the time for that especially when you're a busy human being is is often really difficult yeah that actually it, it it's interesting you bring that up uh because i guess that takes me to my next question maybe you've already answered it to some degree but it's like how do you maintain that balance between uh you know doing the work that still brings you joy and you know it's it's really the truth and you know remembering that this is you know who you are whether there's an audience there or not and remembering there's an audience there uh to me that's a really delicate balance and i'll share something uh that maybe some of you don't know who listened to our seth godin interview recently after it was done i i actually kind of wanted to email him back and say hey i want to do over i didn't think that was that good (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, and that was, that was the first time in a really long time I had felt that it wasn't up to par. Interesting. You know, I, um, I feel like when you are a creative person who has to produce stuff um, or who's, con- you know, like part of – it's this weird thing, right? Like, because creativity should be this really free expression. But when you are a working creative person, whether you're a writer or a podcast producer – or an illustrator, ultimately there's this thing that you're going to produce. There's a deliverable, there's an end product. And, um, so the, and, the, and, and it, because of that, there's all this pressure attached to making it good or perfect or right. Right. And when you're busy and you're, you know, writing a lot of things or 
making a lot of work or producing a lot of podcasts, you don't necessarily have time for that do-over when something doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's face it, sometimes you just like have that magical day where everything is even better than you could have imagined, you know, whatever it is you were making or producing. And then there are those days where it's the complete opposite. And, yeah. <laughs> and right, that's reality. Like, I think we, we share, we, sh- we, we show our best work and our best selves to the world. And so oftentimes people think that everything you make or do is, is really awesome. Um, but really like my days are filled with like complete flubs and mistakes and screw ups and, um, things that I have to say to the client. I don't know what, I want to hear what ended up happening. Um, if you ever talk to Seth about that, but like oftentimes I'll, I'll have a client job and I'm rushing and I don't, I just don't really like what I've turned in and I, and that doesn't feel good to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes you have to ask for extensions or you have to say, can I try this over? It doesn't quite work for me. Or sometimes the client will say it didn't work for me either. Right. <laughs> you can do better. You know, um, it's a hard thing to, to sort of hold and, and navigate because, um, I think as you know, many of us as humans are like, want everything to be the best that it possibly can be. And it, it's not always the best. Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly enough, unfortunately, it, you know, we got some pretty positive feedback from listeners on <laughs> sure, the interview, uh, which was nice to see. I was like, okay, maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought. And it was all in my head. Uh, you know, so on, on that note, let's shift gears a little bit and uh, let, let's actually talk about your creative process. And, and what I want to do is, is, you know, sort of dissect the creative process of a visual artist and talk about how we might apply that same process to other art forms, regardless of whatever our art happens to be. So my, my own creative process, yeah. like what mine looks like, Yeah. well, it, it mostly depends what I'm working on. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, I have this sort of, my work falls into two separate categories. I both make personal work, which is fine artwork, which is, um, sometimes turns into like print reproductions, but it's, I'm not making it for a client. I'm not getting art direction. This is all from my sort of my own inner creative juices flowing. Um, and that, that work is much more organic and iterative and, um, you know, I'll go into the studio and I'll have an idea of what I want to do, but I just start painting usually. I, I paint both abstractly and, um, representationally. So for my abstract work, I, I never, people always ask me, do you have a plan? And I say, no, I might know the color scheme I want to use, or like I might get inspired by a certain, you know, shapes and then I want to start including them in my work. Um, and occasionally I'll get a commission where somebody will give me some vague ideas of what they want their painting to, to have in it. Um, and then when I do representational work, I sometimes work from photo reference or I'll, you know, have a sort of closer idea of what I want to generate, but my commercial work is really different. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this is, you know, important for people who do commercial work to, you know, or want to do commercial work to understand is that, you know, when you're an artist, it's often like, and this is actually why a lot of people don't want to do commercial work because you have to follow art direction. You have to, you get an assignment. It's like a, it's like an assignment in school, you know? Um, and you, you know, the, they say well, it has to be this dimensions and it has to reference this, you know, if you're illustrating for a magazine, it has to reference this story and we'd like it, you know, here's some ideas and um, you might even have to sketch out a few different ideas and then they choose the one they want. And so sometimes my creative press process looks um, very kind of regimented in a way. Like I'll get an assignment, um, to, to illustrate an article for a magazine, for example. 
and the art director gives me, you know, a, a creative brief essentially, um, and says, this is the style of your work that we're interested in. This is the dimension. These are the colors we'd like you to use. And sometimes they don't give you that much, you know, they, sometimes they say, you know, go to town, do whatever you want. But mm-hmm. most of the time there's, you know, some creative direction. And then you, you start by sketching, which I don't do at all in my own personal work. I don't sketch, um, out what I'm going to do before I make it. But you always do that, you know, when you're an illustrator. And, um, and then you turn in the sketches first. And usually there's more than one. And then they choose the one they like the best, but there might even be changes. So the sketching phase is really important. And then if you and the art director agree. And then, the, you know, you move on to the final artwork. And you want the sketch to be far enough along so that if you're actually laying paint on paper or doing the kind of final production work that takes the most time that you've got as clear as possible on the concept and what it is you're going to be drawing or painting. And then I make the final artwork and I scan it and I clean it up and I send it off. So you can see where, you know, both could be super satisfying, um, but they're really different. And that's why I like being both a fine artist and a commercial artist, because I get to have these like really strict you know, boundaries around my work on the one hand, which in some ways is kind of an easier way to work. Mm -hmm. And then I also make work that's like completely free form and whatever I want. And, you know, and sometimes that can feel, you know, really freeing and amazing. So my process really varies, you know, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think that the most telling thing that, uh, to me that you said is you, you go in without a plan usually. And I think that it's interesting, right? Even with constraints, sometimes we try to, you know, mold these constraints into some sort of plan. And I only know this because, um, lately I've been trying to work on a book proposal and it's been literally the most agonizing process I've ever gone through. I, you know, and I can write a thousand words a day as easily as brushing my teeth. And I've done it for three years almost at this point. And every day I look at, you know, work on book proposal on my to-do list. I'm like, I'm like, I hate this. And finally, for some reason yesterday, I said, you know, I'm just going to throw out all the, the the idea of the structure and the linearity of it. And I think that what showed up on the page was really different. Uh, you know, my editor, Carolyn, she said, this is what I think you were meant to write. Right. And I think that's because so often, I, you know, I also think that constraints and structure can actually help in some cases. But mm-hmm. in some cases, it depends on where you are in your process. It depends on what kind of person you are and what, how your brain works. Um, and, um, obviously for you, like, yeah, this, it, once you let go of having to put it in outline form or whatever it was, you, you were able to sort of freely get your ideas down. Um, and that is such an important thing to remember that often I think we have, we feel like we have to sort of go into everything with a plan mm-hmm. and that can actually, um, stifle your creativity. Oh yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, let's do this. Uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the really, really early part of your career as an artist. You know, you mentioned, you know, the struggle and it not happening overnight. One of the big questions that I have really wrestled with and and one of the things that I've dug deep on, which is probably why we've had so many performance psychologists on this show is, uh, navigating the emotional uncertainty, uh, of having a career that doesn't have any guarantees that come with it. And that, has this sort of starving artist myth, uh, tied to it. Uh, I'd be really interested in, in, you know, your own personal challenges that you had to overcome during that process. And, you know, if there were moments in which you felt, you know, crippled by fear or self doubt. Oh, absolutely. Um, and there are still moments, 
on, they're less frequent than they <laughs> used to be, but, um, yeah. So there, you know, there's this, I think you, you hit the nail on the head in the way that you described it. So being an artist and I imagine being a writer, um, or, you know, or a freelance actor sort of falls in the same category. There are probably other examples too, right? That anytime you're a freelancer in a creative field in particular, there are no guarantees, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you make work, you take jobs, you, you know, get all these opportunities hopefully come to you. Um, it took me, or sometimes they don't come to you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, which is more, feels harder. When I was first starting out, I had very few opportunities. And in fact, I signed with an illustration agent pretty early on, um, before my career took off. And, um, for some reason I thought that was going to be the panacea, right? I'll sign with an agent and then all of a sudden I'll get all of this work. And then that, that, that didn't happen. Um, and the bottom line was that I just needed to work hard and be patient. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I think I'm a, I'm a, a cheerleader for the idea that, you know, it takes an enormous amount of dedication and hard work to be an artist. Um, because there are so many, um, especially in the beginning, you go through these periods where nothing is happening. Even yeah. if you're doing all the things you're supposed to do. Like I have people say, Oh, I read your book and I'm doing all the things and nothing's happening. And I'm like, you have to do all the things every day for, for, for several years mm -hmm. and you can't give up. And then eventually, you know, you'll hit your tipping point. Um, so keeping your head down and working hard, I think sort of helps a little bit, but, um, but yeah, you go through these moments of panic and in the beginning too, like you say yes to every opportunity that comes your way, even if it's not something that resonates for you because you're like, well, there may never be anything else again. I'm, I should definitely take this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, as you build your career and you start to have more opportunity and your following grows and you, you know, things start happening for you as a creative person, um, I think it is possible to start relaxing and knowing that, um, you know, that like, that this is going to keep flowing. It's mm -hmm. like this trust that it's all this stuff that's in motion is going to keep flowing. And that's starting to happen for me now. Um, even though I've, I've had been in this place of opportunity for about five years in the very beginning, I just was constantly freaking out that it was all going to be over tomorrow. <laughs> you know, that the people who came calling were going to stop, that people were going to stop following or liking my work. And, um, yeah, it was super scary. In fact, I was having dinner with a friend the other night who is another fairly well-known illustrator. And she and I were reflecting on the fact that we had had a conversation about four years earlier about this idea that we, we didn't feel like we could say no to any opportunity that came into our inbox, mm -hmm. even if we were too busy. Because even if we didn't have time, we would say yes to everything and stay up all night because we were so scared that it was all going to end and, it, and that we would somehow like jinx it by saying no. Mm you know, to an opportunity or a potential client or whatever. And that we're so different now that we actually have gotten to the place where we trust that the work's going to keep flowing and that it's a good thing to pace yourself and not take on too much work. Um, not that it still isn't scary or feel bad to, you know, to have to say no. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's ultimately the place you want to get as a creative person where you have like choices and that you only take the work that resonates for you the most yeah. as a freelancer. But, um, but it's really hard because there is all this like, doubt and um, am I good enough? Is this going to last? I still think about that. Like things are great now, but am I still going to be relevant in 10 years? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, 
You know, it's interesting. I, I can tell you from experience, you know, I've had those moments of panic, uh, you know, especially after success. Uh, and that's even scarier because you feel like you're going to lose everything that you've worked so hard for. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, it, it, what, what's interesting is that it's in those moments when I didn't panic that somehow everything sort of started to work again. Um, but the more I panicked, the more I stressed. And, you know, it's interesting because I've been reading a lot of neuroscience around this. It's just like, you know, a stressed out brain doesn't produce good work. You know, it's interesting. I have made a huge shift in the last year. And I'm chalking it up to age, but I do think that, um, like I'm less, I have just as much work as I've ever had, if not more, but I'm, I have less anxiety Mm -hmm. and I had this experience. So when Art Inc. came out last year, I had worked so hard on this book and I had really poured myself into it and then it got so edited and it went through all these things. I mean, you know, it's just like crazy when you work with an editor and then it goes off to print, right? So then you have distance from it from a while. And then I was I, I realized that I was having so much anxiety about when it came out that people were going to say, who are you to write this book about making a living as an artist? Or this is all a crock of crap, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was so scared that it was going to like get terrible reviews or like that people were going to crush it. And like, so I was like bracing myself for like two years with all this anxiety about this book. And then it came out and it was all positive and great and and I was like, I spent all of that time worrying about this, um, and it ended up being amazing. So now I decided that I'm gonna, for all my future books, I'm just gonna think positively about them and not worry, and then like shift my focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really feel like the books that I'm working on now are way better than the books I I made in the beginning of my career when I was really anxious all the time. And I think part of it is that like. When you're when you're not so bogged down by stress or worry or anxiety, you you really can just do better work. Yeah, without a doubt, I think you really start to find flow uh, in those moments. You know, I, I want to ask you a question that you know uh, came up for me as, as we were talking about this, and and something that I had talked to a, another guest about. You know, Sometimes, at least you know, in my own uh, experience, we we look at success and we think success is going to heal all these wounds and it's going to make up for all the inadequacies we might feel about ourselves. And I realized, you know, at at some point, I had thought that certain success would fill an emotional void, uh, yep. only to discover that it didn't. And I'd be really interested in your perspective on that, based on your own experience and the artists that you've worked with and people you've seen. Well. I can speak mostly from my own experience. Um, I just gave a keynote address at a big blogging conference in January, and uh, one of my sort of like main lessons that I was sharing in the in the talk was this idea that basically was like let go of the idea that that it will ever be perfect. And I was sort of sharing this story that for most of my life, I thought you know if only I could make this amount of money, my life will be okay. Or if only I could you know, not ha- ever have an awkward conversation with somebody again, or if only I could, um, get all of these goals accomplished or make this, you know, I, you know, make this body of work, or if only, you know, I could do this or that, or ac- even on one day accomplish everything on my to-do list, <laughs> um, that everything will somehow, my life will be good and perfect. And what I've realized is that as my career has grown, I've I've met all of the goals. I've had all of the successes, um, and that deep, you know, like like the whatever well of pain you have inside of you is still going to be there. That that the successes and the um, and all of those other things are 
like not going to fill that. That has to be filled in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that really accepting this idea that your life will never be perfect and that your to-do list will never be completely finished and that there will be goals you haven't achieved and, um, you know, whatever, like, and then even if you do achieve them, you know, that your life is just like life is messy mm. and careers are messy and that sort of leaning into that discomfort and messiness and embracing it um, and like realizing that it's actually the imperfections and the messiness that, you know, lead to some of the most profound and beautiful things in life um, is really, you know, a really freeing perspective. And again, you know, I think that like that just takes a a bunch of life experience. It's not like you can wake up in the morning (laughs) and say, oh, by the way, you know, I'm uh, from today on, I'm not going to worry about this or that or, you know, so I don't know. That's something that I feel like I've like made some transformation recently that I, I think I referred to it a few minutes ago that I'm sort of like worrying less about things and, and also realizing that no matter what I achieve, that, um, that my life will never, that I will have never arrived. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> that is, you know, it's one of those moments in a conversation where I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't know that we can top that. Uh, <laughs> seriously, just a, a beautiful, beautiful poetic way to, to wrap up our conversation. So I want to ask you my final question, um, which is how we end everything here at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I should probably not think about this too much, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's why I never let anybody know that that's the question I'm going to ask. I think getting up every day and, um, and living is, is closely to your true self as you possibly can will make, will make at least you unmistakable. And if you don't know who your true self is, then make that your path. Hmm. Well, Lisa, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights uh, and your story, your journey with our listeners. This has been really, really cool. And, uh, you know, for those of you listening, I'll link up everything Lisa mentioned in the show notes, including her book. All right. Thank you. Yeah. And we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.